This is episode 150 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2015, Standing in the Gap. This is session three from Saturday night. So we, we don't stop worshiping now. It's not like the worship time is over, okay? Because the, the proclamation of the word is something for us to exult in, in together. And so I don't want you to see this as, as sort of like now the worship is over and now it's time for the instruction. So I plan to worship as I sort of exult in the word with you. And I, I hope that you plan to worship as you receive the word, that everything would be stewarded to God's glory. I don't know about you, but my heart is really full right now. And so what I would love to do as, as we continue looking at this passage is to just be so open that our soul would sing, right? That our soul would sing. So let's pray. I want to ask um, the Father to bless our time together. Um, that His Spirit, I feel like His Spirit is, is, is really doing something new and fresh here um, with us this evening. And um, I want to pray that He would help us to believe in that and to expect great things. Heavenly Father, th- thank you for the brotherhood that you create through your gospel. Thank you, Father, for these, for these sons, these, these men whom your son is not ashamed uh, to call his brothers. He, he, he sincerely ought to be ashamed of us because of our sin. And yet to say, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And to say in your, in your word, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. What an amazing truth that you've given us through the gospel of grace. We ask that you would help our souls to sing, not just our mouths, but our souls to sing this evening. What a great and wonderful thing you have done through your son. We ask that your spirit would continue to be here implanting the work of Christ in our hearts, pressing the gospel into every corner of our souls, that we would be filled to overflowing with the glory of your son. We pray these things in the power of your spirit and the name of your son, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Before we jump into 1 Peter chapter 2, and we are again going to be looking at the same two verses and in in fact just one uh, one little section again of verse 9, I want to share with you um, uh, a passage that um, I have been afraid to preach for the last 10 years. Um, so I um, have been in and out of vocational ministry for the last 20 years, but for the last um, 10 years I've served in, in, in the uh, lead pastor role in two different churches. And this is a, a passage that I have always loved, but I've always been afraid to preach. And now that I'm not a pastor, now that uh, you know, I'm just sort of a working stiff at a, a, a seminary, I feel like it's my job to preach this passage as often as I can. And it comes from Hebrews chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but I'm thinking if you're a pastor in the room, you know exactly where I'm going right now. Hebrews 13, this is verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be a no advantage to you. Now, I'm sure that this verse, like many Bible verses, uh, many, many Bible verses has been exploited, has been leveraged, has been used by authoritarian pastors and dictatorial pastors to sort of squeeze people into submission, to quiet them down. But um, 
You and I know those pastors exist, but I personally know a whole, uh, a whole lot more faithful, soul-curing shepherds who day in and day out are doing the faithful work of gospel ministry with meekness and patience and forbearance. Those are the kind of pastors that I know. And they'll never preach that passage to you because it makes them self-conscious. They don't want to be seen as complaining. It's a mark, actually, of their patience and their forbearance with you and, and their meekness before you that they would not preach this passage to you because they don't want to be seen as complaining or be seen as trying to leverage, leverage your submission. But that's the word of the Lord. And if the Spirit is doing something special here, if, this, if the Holy Spirit is present here and He is pressing on you, it's got to be something deeper than some kind of emotional response to worship music. It has to result in, in real adoration of Christ, which has to result in real repentance. Now, I don't know you and I don't know your story. I get to come stir things up and leave. But I believe what Martin Luther said in the beginning of his 95 Theses, which is that all of life is repentance. And he's pulling straight from Jesus Christ, who said, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. We love brotherhood. We love being with lots of men. But one thing that I think Christian men need to repent of sincerely and deeply and consistently is being terrible churchmen. Maybe that's not you. You let the Spirit sort that out with you. But Christian men are to be good churchmen. Not because, not because being a good churchman earns you credit with God or in some way factors into your salvation, into your justification, but precisely because of what Paul has said to Peter. You're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Christians are to be good churchmen precisely because that's how saved people live. We're beginning to see more and more, especially in the younger generation, but it's not simply monopolized by the younger generation, but this sort of distancing, this disconnect from the local church, as if we can do the Christian life without the local church. The consumeristic mentality plays into that, but certainly the sort of personal independence, the lone ranger kind of autonomy that men especially are drawn to. I am a rock, I am an island. No, Simon and Garfunkel, you are incorrect. That's a little one for you older folks. You are not a rock. You are not an island. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. These are spirit-breathed words coming to us. And even as we have looked at the gospel proclaimed here, showing us the sort of security we have as individuals in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it, it ought to be plain, plain to you as we keep looking at this passage that these are plural categories. These are corporate categories, a race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. These are not individualistic categories. And so you may be saved as an individual. You are saved as uh, uh, an individual, but you are not saved to an individualistic faith. That entire concept is foreign to the Scriptures. 
We are saved within a context. We are saved for something. The gospel is so much bigger than us. And when it saves us, it doesn't just reconcile us to God. It reconciles us to our fellow man. We're going to be looking tonight at these two phrases in verse 9. A holy nation and a people for his own possession. A holy nation and a people for his own possession. Now, we see the disconnect. What the gospel solves is so big and so... um, so insidious, so complex, but you see sort of in the fallout, in the, in the fall of mankind, what the gospel is putting together. So if you remember, when Adam and Eve partake of the fruit of the knowledge uh, of good and evil, the one tree that the Lord says not to eat from, and they disobey him, the disconnect that happens, that sort of divorce, the broken relationship that happens, is not simply between them and God. Do you remember? So as soon as God comes and sort of calls them to account, they begin doing what my religion professor in college, Dr. M.B. Jackson, great, great man, patches on the elbows, pipe. And it, was just, it was like Gandalf was teaching me religion. It was fantastic. <laughs> he said, since the beginning of time, since sin began, we all suffer from BTS. What is BTS? It is blame transference syndrome. Blame trend. It is always somebody else's fault. We are self-justifiers. And so when God calls them on the carpet and he speaks to Adam, what does Adam say? It's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. <laughs> Might want to take that up with your pastor later. and uh, <laughs> Marriage counseling, I don't know. Uh, Then he speaks to Eve, and what does she say? It was the serpent. Down the line, they're they're constantly, and what does this do? As we're trying to pin the blame on someone else, as we suffer from this BTS, it's, it's like in the fallen DNA that we have, our sin is always somebody else's fault. It creates this, this fracture in our own relationships. And so what you see is that the fallout of sin doesn't just separate us from God, it actually separates us from each other. And so even in the curse that God pronounces, he he says, not only is there going to be enmity between you and me, Adam, but there's going to be enmity between you and your wife. Husband's going to try to rule over her. Everything that takes place in that relationship is the evidences of the fall. And so it makes sense that when the gospel comes and it restores creation, and it makes us a new creation, it wouldn't simply just give us this sort of hotline, vertical relationship with God, but it must, it must reconcile us to each other. If the gospel is real and the gospel is true and the gospel is is curing what disobedience broke, it has to be a holistic reconciliation. And you see this reflected even in the law. So when God delivers the, uh, for instance, the Ten Commandments to Moses, and you look at those Ten Commandments, you see how sort of the first table of that law, the first four commandments, are all about that vertical relationship, the relationship between us and, and God. Don't take his name in vain. Don't make idols and worship them. But then the last part of the Ten Commandments, the um, latter six commandments, are all about our horizontal relationship, the relationship with our neighbor. Don't steal. Don't lie, don't kill, don't commit adultery. Now that's certainly about our relationship with God, but it's also very much about our relationship with our neighbors. And so what you see is what God is doing through the gospel is not simply uniting us to himself, but uniting us to each other. 
The gospel, in fact, is building a people. It's creating a church. And so the first thing that we see about this holy nation, about the people that he is possessing to himself is this. A holy nation is unified. A holy nation is unified. Paul in Ephesians um, sort of uses the um, nomenclature of the time, the sort of cultural disconnect at the time, Jews and Gentiles and um, those who sort of grew up hearing the covenant word, hearing sort of, you know, in the midst of the covenant history, hearing the things of God, and then those who are far off, the the non-Jew, the pagan, the Samaritan, the Moabite, all those people who are on the outside of the camp, Paul is saying God is making them one man by bringing them together. He says those who are near and those who are far off, God is uniting them to himself and therefore to each other. He's making one man out of all those people. It's a beautiful thing. This is a supernatural thing. No other religion or philosophy, no other, you know, like self-help technique, nothing could create this, this broken, fractured, beautiful mess we call the church. Only the gospel can do that. And he does it through Jesus. He doesn't do it through shared interests or shared ethnicity or shared social class or shared giftedness. He does it through shared sin and shared holiness. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us stand in its shadow. There is no elevated place. There is no special uh, uh, you know, place for those who are more holy or more right. All have sin and fall short of the glory of God. And I don't think many of us um, quite get the sort of radical inclusion of the gospel, at least to the extent that we ought to. God is bringing, God is bringing sinners into his inner sanctum where they do not belong. And he is flinging the doors wide open and say, bring me all of your mess. Bring me all of your sin. Bring me all of the people who are in the margins, the people who are in the hedges and the byways, the people who have given up on life, the people who are hopeless and helpless and desperate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. One of my favorite sort of illustrations of what it means to be included into the inner sanctum of God comes from a little commentary. It's kind of a devotional commentary by John Phillips on the book of Hebrews. It's just called Exploring Hebrews. My dad had it on his bookshelf. I sort of inherited it as I entered into ministry, and I found it extremely helpful, this illustration. I want to read it to you. Philip says, Imagine a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tents and tabernacle of Israel from some lofty mountain height. Attracted by what he sees, he descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It is a high wall of dazzling linen which reaches over his head. He walks around it until he comes to the gate where he sees a man. May I go in there, he asks, pointing through the gate to where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you, demands the man suspiciously, because any Israelite would know he could go in there. I am a man from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry, but you cannot go in there. It's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until his 10th generation. The Moabite looks sad. He says, what would I have to do to go in there? You would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You would have to be born an Israelite. You would need to be born of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin, or the tribe of Dan. Says the Moabite, I wish I had been born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel. 
As he looks more closely, he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and cleansed himself at the brazen laver. Go on into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? asked the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside there is a room containing a lampstand, a table, and an altar of gold. The man you saw was a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat of the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Ah, oh, sighs the man of Moab, I wish I were an Israelite so that I could do that. I should love to worship God in that holy place and help to trim the lamp to offer him some incense and to eat at that table. Oh no, says the man at the gate, even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, one must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish, he says, I wish I'd been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi of the family of Aaron. Gazing wistfully at the closed tabernacle door, he says, what else is in there? There's a veil, replies his informant. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told. It divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What's in the holy of holies, he asks. There's the sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains certain holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call it the mercy seat because God sits there. Between the golden cherubim, you see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of longing shadows the face of the man from Moab. Oh, he says, if only I were a priest. I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in the beauty of holiness. Oh no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. To enter into the most holy place, you would have to be the high priest of Israel. Only he can go in there. Nobody else, only he. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries, if only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born the high priest. I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again and once more shakes his head. Oh no, he says, you couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year and then only after the most elaborate of preparations and even then only for a very little while. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there. But brothers, we have a great high priest and he has entered the place for us and satisfied the entire mechanism of the law. And that veil has been torn from top to bottom. So you know that it was torn from heaven. And we get to be inside the Holy of Holies, hidden with Christ in God. This is the blessing of the gospel. Unified to God, that even those who are far off in every other religion and philosophy in the world, man is in the gutter looking up to heaven, wondering, how do I get up there? Only in Christianity does heaven come to the gutter. And he's scooping up all of the hurt people, all of the wounded people, all of the spiritual corpses. And he breathes life into them. And he brings them into the inner sanctum and makes them at home with Christ, seats them at the table, feeds them on himself, unified with God. And you know what? You start looking around the table and there's a whole lot of other people there too. People who don't look like you 
but who are just as lost and helpless and hopeless as you. And this is what God does. He takes the Jews and the Moabites, and he takes the Jews and the Gentiles, and he takes male and female, slave and free, rich and poor. And because that ground is level at the foot of the cross, he says there's not good people and bad people. There's Jesus and people. And he unites them to each other. He has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He has made you holy, but as a nation, as a people, he unifies you to himself, but also to each other. A holy nation is unified. Secondly, a holy nation is selfless. A holy nation is selfless. Now, you and I tend to go through this world swinging between these polarities, okay? Law and license. Law and license. And usually the way we sort of correct these things, right, is we just sort of pendulum swing to the other side, right? You see those really kind of stuffy religious traditional people and you're just kind of like, they just need to loosen up a little bit. And all those stuffy religious traditional people are looking over at all the, you know, loosey-goosey. But you need to tighten up some things. You need to kind of behave yourself. And we just think this is the way to Martin Luther gave the great illustration. He says, the, you know, the, the drunk man tries not to fall off the horse on one side by falling off on the other side. And that's us just swinging back and forth. And nowhere do we see this more visible than in the parable of the prodigal son. Like, if you're reading that through the lens of these polarities, what you think is, man, that, that lost son, he, he really needs to get his act together. And, and he did need to get his act together, but from the perspective of the older brother, man, he, he, he needs to show some respect. But when we look at the older brother, he actually comes out looking worse in, in the parable, doesn't he? In fact, more time is spent on him, really, than the son who basically said to his dad, I wish you were dead. And in the end, what you see is Jesus is telling the story. Is we even see the pendulum swing in the story. So do you remember what the prodigal son does? As he's sort of in that pigsty and it says he came to himself or he came to his senses. It's like the light bulb comes on. He, he doesn't think, I, I will go home and I will be restored and accepted by my father. No, what does he say? I'll go home and work for my dad. His, his employees have it better than this. He can't even fathom that he could be forgiven and reconciled. But that's exactly what happens. And when you boil it down, I think what Jesus is trying to say is the, the problem with the lost son and the problem with the older brother is essentially the same problem. They're working it out in different ways. Legalism and license, this sort of religiosity and, and this sort of hedonism, but they're essentially both engaging in, in self-salvation projects. Both of them have themselves at the center of the universe. And then Jesus Christ comes and he sort of explodes all the moral categories. He blows that whole thing up. When we get it through our heads that the gospel doesn't just save us from sin, but from trying to justify ourselves by our behavior, we lose this sort of moralistic polarity. And then we lose the measuring sticks that we hold up to each other. Because that sort of judgmental tendency, that sort of religious arrogance, that sort of pride, comparing ourselves to each other, 
All of that comes from believing that we are God. People have to measure up to us. And the gospel comes and disrupts that whole thing. And then we start participating in the holy nation for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. And then the way this sort of plays out practically is we start coming to church not with our preferences, but with our priorities. We come to church instead of um, with this desire for our own fulfillment, for our own consumeristic values, but we seek the flourishing of others. And when we pursue things like church membership, we're not simply seeking the privileges of church membership, but its responsibilities and its obligations. We want not to just join the club, but to join the mission, in other words. To be reconciled to our brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says that the church essentially exists that we might please our neighbor for his good in order to build him up, not ourselves. And really the difference, the, the way you turn the corner on this is, is essentially deciding how sacred your own comfort is. How sacred is your own comfort to you? Steve Timmis is a pastor over in England. I think he helps make this pretty clear to us. He quotes, he begins by quoting Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Timothy says, if I'm not prepared to jeopardize a friendship so that I can tell others about Christ, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to miss out on a promotion so I can stay and help plant churches, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I'm not willing to pursue people who are different from me in order to bless them, I can be fairly certain I won't give up my life. If I refuse to give up a vacation abroad so I can support someone in gospel ministry, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. If I'm not prepared to give up my bed to go and serve someone, I can be fairly confident I won't give up my life. But this is the most profound love that one can have for someone else. Jesus Christ says there's no greater love than this, that we would lay down our life for our friends. And all of this comes by the gospel that gets us outside of ourselves, puts us with Christ, gives us the heavenly perspective. So we're not living just for this life and for our own comfort, but we're willing to abandon, abandon our own selves, our own lives for the good of the church. Knowing that Jesus has said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church. Not against Lone Ranger Christians. The church doesn't work if you are only seeking to get something out of it. A holy nation is selfless. A holy nation is gracious. Thirdly, a holy nation is gracious. To be a holy nation is to be set apart. You don't run by the world's values and the world's preferences. You don't worship the world's gods. The world is running on this law mode. Even the irreligious world is running on this law mode. I see this constantly. So Vermont, the least church state in the nation, if you're looking at like Barna and Pew Forum, the surveys, out of all 50 states, Vermont, number 50. Highest concentration of people who, who, who check off none when it comes to religion on their religious surveys. And I sort of subscribe on Facebook to this um, Rutland, Vermont spotlight. It's essentially um, sort of like the police blotter, but it's a local citizen who's constantly putting up all the crime news on there. And I've been following this for a while, and it's so interesting to see the comments on some of these criminal headlines from the irreligious people of Vermont. Because they have a very profound sense of righteousness. 
what should happen to all these criminals? We should just line them all up and shoot them all. So that's an interesting thing for an irreligious person to say. Doesn't sound very tolerant. No. It's built into us. I mean, you only have to, uh, you know, go to your playground for, for too long until you hear some kid yell out, it's not fair. Where does that come from? We have this innate sense of justice. We have this innate sense of law in us. So even the irreligious world is running on these sort of scales. Be bigger, be better, do more, try harder, be nice, be kind, be good. But the nation that Christ is building is holy precisely because it has ceased. This is so important. It has ceased from its working to become holy. And it's embraced the reality that the work of holiness has been accomplished. If we go further into the gospel, right? Right on the surface of the gospel, the simple gospel that children believe in and are legitimately saved is this. If I uh, ask Jesus for forgiveness and believe he died on the cross for me and, and rose from the dead for me, then I can have forgiveness and go to heaven when I die. So that's like the surface of the gospel. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it so gracious of God that he doesn't just wipe the slate clean and say, good luck. Get a do-over. Try a little harder this time. No, he, he does wipe that slate clean and then he etches onto our souls the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That we would be counted righteous in Christ. That we would really believe Jesus when he says, it is finished. And if you really believe that, brothers, you would look at your brothers and sisters through the eyes of grace instead of the eyes of the law. The church, the nation that is holy, operates on grace. They are one by grace to grace. I love the old hymn, 1894, Spencer Walton, in tenderness he sought me. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again, while angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. Grace that brought me to the fold of God. He died for me while I was sinning, needing and poor and blind. He whispered to assure me, I found thee, thou art mine. I'd never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold of God. Grace that brought me to the fold of God. It is grace that has brought us into the church, and it is grace that our churches ought to smell like. Do people smell grace when they walk into your church? We must have a unity of doctrine, yes, we must be united on the essentials of the Christian faith. We must be united theologically, yes. That is a, a, a minimum requirement. To be unified, to be the church is, is certainly not less than that, but it is certainly more than that. We must have the harmony that that unity of doctrine produces. Ray Ortland has helpfully said, gospel truth lovingly and consistently applied cultivates a gospel culture. And when people come into your church, they come to visit your church, or they somehow enter into the sort of sphere of your church life, and especially if they have no church background, but even if they do, and it's perhaps some sort of um, difficult church background, they were burned in some way by 
church past. They walk into the life of your church or they visit your worship service and they're looking at all kinds of things. And in a way, their kind of eyes are narrowed, maybe not physically, but just sort of spiritually. Their eyes are narrowed, their teeth are clenched. They're sort of holding their breath and they're looking at all kinds of things. And yes, they may want to make sure that your preaching is listenable. They want to make sure that your music is enjoyable, that your facilities are easy to navigate. But a lot of times those things are not deal breakers. The deal breaker for them is this, is what they are preaching something that they are living Is the words that are coming from the pulpit and the words that are being sung in the songs, is that something that has sunk down into the marrow of their bones? I would remind my church in Vermont often, a message of grace will attract people, but it's a culture of grace that will keep them. I mean, you preach grace long enough, people will show up. But if they're not experiencing grace in your culture, they're gone. Because they know that you don't walk your talk. Have we taken it to heart? Are we developing a gospel culture? Does our church smell like grace? One of the things that I developed in my ministry in Vermont was a men's discipleship group. And there had been various um, sort of manifestations of men's ministry in the church. They had a men's breakfast every month and that sort of thing. But nothing had ever really taken off. And I had this idea that we were going to meet twice a month. And then we'd add a third time where any man could come um, to the elders' meetings and sort of study with the elders, be a part of an elders' study session. But for those other two Mondays, we were going to have a men's discipleship group. And word kind of got out that that people share there. And it was kind of like I had a little raised eyebrows. And men would kind of wander into this meeting and be like, what's, you know, what's happening here? Because women share, right? Like they knew what the ladies did at their Bible study, but... They're walking in, they're like, are you serving tea? You have tea here? Because uh, it's like, I'm out if there's tea. It's too. And they'll sit down, and they're, they're very skeptical. Especially, I mean, Vermonters. I don't know if you know anything about Vermonters, but they're just very kind of, you know, what is this all about? And they'd sit down, and we would do a Bible study. We'd go through a book, and, you know, we would pray together. But we would have share time. And we unabashedly called it that. Share time. (laughs) And people get a little tense. The men get a little tense. Until people started sharing. And it's especially helpful. Pastors, lay leaders, it's especially helpful if leaders go first. Because you set the tone here. And when someone, for instance, in my position, or one of our elders would confess sin or admit some kind of weakness or failure, some kind of vulnerability, you could, you could just, that, the tension would just sort of leave the room. And you could see men in their first or second time there sort of look across the table and just this, this profound, this surprise look like, you can say that here? Like he can say it and you don't, you don't run him out of the room? Well, what's happening? It becomes a very safe place to be a sinner. Is your church a safe place to be a sinner? Not a safe place for sin, but a safe place to be a sinner. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could go to church and not have to suck in our gut? I mean physically, sure, but I mean like spiritually, to to just be ourselves. And brothers, the more, the more we press into the gospel, the more we press into the gospel, the more secure we feel in Christ. The more we really believe, the more we really understand, if God is for me, who can be against me? 
and the more freely we'll confess our sin to each other. Why? Because it's been forgiven. We've been purchased. We are secure. And people begin to sort of testify to each other about the kindness of God in their lives. And they begin sort of holding each other up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, in the church we meet each other as bringers of the gospel. He says something very confusing, but it's, it's very true. He says, the gospel in me is stronger than the gospel in my brother, but the gospel in my brother is stronger than the gospel in me. Now, you probably don't know how that makes sense unless you've ever sat down with a brother and confessed sin to each other. And you bring your vulnerability, you bring your confession, and he shares with you the grace of Jesus Christ that forgives you. And now you understand how the gospel in him is stronger than the gospel in you. You need to hear the gospel proclaimed to you by your brother. A culture of grace begins to sort of oxygenate the air. Watch people stand a little taller, breathe a little bit more deeply, feel more free to just be themselves. Another beautiful thing about the gospel as we press in is is this. It makes each of us more and more like Jesus Christ, and it makes each of us more and more like our true selves. I don't know how that works, but it does. We We can stop pretending. We can stop pretending. But what frustrates this so often is is something else that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about in his little book, Life Together. Fantastic book on the life of a church. Life Together. He calls it the wish dream. He says the wish dream. The wish dream is the the vision for the church we want. And this is especially uh, tempting for pastors and leaders. Right, because you want your church to go a certain place. You, you want your church to be growing. To, you have a vision for where you want your church to be. And, and, and that's good and that's fine. But when you start comparing the church that you have to the church that you want, it, it prevents you from loving the church that you have. Because they never measure up. And we do this with everyone. We have sort of the wish dream job. We have the wish dream marriage. And our spouses can never measure up to the wish dream wife. This is what Bonhoeffer says about the Whispering Church. This applies in a special way to the complaints often heard from pastors and zealous members about their congregations. A pastor, this was so convicting to me when I first read it, a pastor should not complain about his congregations. Certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before God and men. Do you know that that job's already taken? Bonhoeffer says, when a person becomes alienated from a Christian community in which he has been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he had better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that should be shattered by God. And if this is the case, let him thank God for leading him into this predicament. See, the gospel cannot make us into little judges of each other's ministerial output. It cannot make us people who keep sizing each other up, measuring each other, rehearsing each other's failings. The gospel is not tuned to the frequency of accusation. And so to be a gracious people, to embrace the grace that has won us, means seeing ourselves as grace givers and not just grace takers. Grace cannot be hoarded. If, if you are hoarding grace, it's not really grace that you're hoarding, it's, it's self-righteousness. The gospel cannot puff us up, it cannot make us prideful, it cannot make us selfish, it cannot make us arrogant, it cannot make us rude, it cannot make us gossipy, it cannot make us accusers. And so the more we press into the gospel, the more the gospel takes over our hearts and the spaces we bring our hearts into, it stands to reason the less we would see those things. 
Because you cannot grow in holiness and holier than thouness at the same time. So a church that makes its main thing the gospel when faced with sin in its ranks doesn't simply crack the whip of the law. It says, remember the gospel. And it begins to see grace come to bear more and more. Now this scares people who think that God has delegated to them sovereignty. Like the Holy Spirit needs our help. But it honors the gospel of Jesus. When someone is repentant, brothers, we must bring the comfort of the gospel to them. Now, what does this look like? What does a holy nation, a people for his own possession, look like? I think it looks like Christ. And this is why the church is called the body of Christ. Who has said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It is easy and light. It's the graciousness that we show each other is the graciousness of Christ. Again, in Romans 15, Paul says it this way. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's what the holy nation looks like. That's what a people for his own possession look like. We welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Now, if if you're like me, you're reading scriptures like this, you want to ask questions, and this is what I want to ask when I come across that question. Welcome, welcome my brothers and sisters the way Christ has welcomed me. How has Christ welcomed me? How has Christ welcomed me? Well, the way that I was sort of raised, the way that was just sort of built into me, the sort of timidity, the sort of neuroses, the, the fearfulness that I had as a believer. I, I, I do believe as I was growing up that I, I made a credible profession of faith. I do believe that I was a Christian, but I was a very weak and, and non-assured, unassured Christian. I constantly believed that I was only as good as what I hadn't done, and therefore my assurance was so much tied to my performance. My identity was constantly built on what I was doing or not doing, and not on what Jesus has done for me. And so the way that I used to think that Jesus might welcome me is this. Like, you ever think, like, God loves you because he has to? Right? Like, like the Bible says, God is love. So it's like he, he, he really has no choice. He has to love you. And so I'm thinking, I, I referenced in an earlier message that school cafeteria where Jesus might have been sitting in, in relation to how I felt as an adolescent. Well, I, I put myself right back there. And this is how I used to think that, that Jesus would welcome me. It's sort of like, you know he has to accept you because he's Jesus. Because God is love, so he has to love you. And so you, I'm, I'm just sort of inching into the room, and I know Jesus is in there with the really spiritual people, the people that he is close with. And I'm walking in there, and he's in the corner with all of his closest followers, all the people who are really holy and really spiritual. And I just, I'm, I want to be in the room, but I hope he doesn't notice me. And I'm looking over, and, and Jesus notices me. Sort of, you know, skunk into the room, and, and I can see the look on his face like, what is he doing here? And he's shaking his head and he's muttering under his breath to his friends. Jared, who, who invited Jared? Well, the, fa- the father says I have to let him in, so I guess I've got to let him in. This, this guy. Like, that's how I felt. Maybe you feel that way, even this weekend. That's how you, you feel like the Lord receives you. Reluctant, reluctantly, as if he's, he's just sort of tolerating you. This guy. 
But something happened to me, brothers, that was so profound. I'll share more about it tomorrow morning. Something happened to me that, that blew open the window to heaven for me. And the way that I see this experience happening now, how does Jesus Christ welcome me? I walk into the room very timid, like very fearful of what's going to happen. And Jesus sees me in the corner, and he, he turns to look, and he sees me coming in, and this is what he does. Not this guy, but this guy! Yes, you're here! So glad you're here. Brothers, that's how Jesus welcomes you. He's not tolerating you. He lavishes his affection on you. He's not ashamed to call you his brothers. When that lost son showed up, finally went home, what was his dad doing? Oh, my word. He wasn't standing on the porch with his arms crossed, tapping his foot. I knew he'd show up. <laughs> right? You ever wonder, like, like maybe he's thinking, that's why I didn't go looking for him. I knew he'd come back. No, he goes to meet him. And he doesn't go out with like the workman's coveralls and a mop and a bucket like, glad you're back, get to work. No, and it's so undignified in that culture what he did. The men of his station would not, would not lower themselves to, to run. But man, he took off. And he grabbed his boy. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. You're found. You were lost and now you're found. This is how Jesus Christ welcomes us. Now, if Jesus Christ has welcomed us that way, by what right do we not welcome each other that way? The only reason we wouldn't is because we would think that we're more holy than Jesus. What would it look like in our churches if we welcomed each other that way? Someone walks in the room. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. We need you. We need you. You know, Paul says about the body we can't say to each other i have no need of you we're just fine without you but when a new body part comes in oh i didn't realize how incomplete we were until you got here a holy nation is unified a holy nation is selfless a holy nation is gracious all because of the work of jesus christ pray with me brothers If we could just understand this, Father. We see ourselves in the light of your holiness, your perfect, spotless, eternal, infinite, radiant holiness. And we should die. We should cry out like Isaiah, woe is me. I am done. I am unclean. And that you would send your son to die for us. We scarce can take it in. Father, help the men in this room who think this is really not such a big deal repent of that. Help us not to yawn at the gospel. Help us to see how amazing grace is that it would save wretches like us. Your son is so precious. Your son is so beautiful. Your son is the end all be all and that he would bring us into, into his life.
and then reconcile us to each other. What an amazing thing. So we thank you for this word, Father. We, we, we would not be able to do this apart from the power of your gospel. We thank you for the might of your son. Father, even now, there are men responding in their hearts to what you are proclaiming to them through your word. I pray it would not simply be an emotional thing, but that they would be drawn to what you are doing through the power of your spirit. That you would make us good repenters and comfort us with your grace. Help us to keep worshiping even now, Father. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.